Um, let me turn to introductions then and then we can hand over to our speakers. Uh, Dr. Philip Lewis and Dr. Sadiq Hamed. Uh, Dr. Philip Lewis has been retired for three years. Sometimes that feels a rather luxurious thought from where I'm sitting, but he was interfaith advisor to the Bishop of Bradford for 30 years and for 15 years lectured in peace studies at the University of Bradford. He's now a visiting fellow at York St John's University and a consultant to the Bishop of Bradford. Um, two previous books of his, one called Islamic Britain, the second Young British and Muslim, and I think you said this book that we're here to talk about today uh, is, if you like, the third in a trilogy, but co-written. And we, I'll come to the book in a moment. Dr. Sadiq Hamid is a research associate at the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies. He's had a long-standing interest in Muslims in Britain and is the author of a 2016 book called Sufis, Salafis and Islamists, uh, which is about the British scene specifically. Um, let me just say that they've come to talk off the back of this new book, as you know, British Muslims, you can see it all up there, so I won't bore you with the subtitle, which was published very recently and in fact was out this morning. So you are here on the day when the baby is born. And uh, if you're interested, you can see these discount cards on your seats, which have a code on them which would get you a discount and take, I think, two or three pounds off the publisher's price if you go online. So, without more ado, I think I'm handing over to Sadiq first, and uh, thank you so much. So, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm assuming everybody can hear us clearly. Don't need any <laughs> any uh, technological assistance here. I'd, I'd just like to thank. Um, uh, the the centre for inviting Philip and myself. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and hopefully you'll find our um, discussion uh, about our book of benefit. Um, thank you, Martin, for the introduction. Um, just a little bit of background, I guess. Um, the first question usually people ask is. Oh, why have you written this book and what's it all about and you know what, what, what does it actually mean what do you actually mean by I mean the the, the main title is, is, is it's a common phrase British Muslims fair enough but the subtitle new directions in Islamic thought creativity and activism is quite hopefully stimulate your uh, curiosity well the background behind the book really it's uh, it's Phillips uh, baby if you like <laughs> to carry on the metaphor I, I, I Philip is somebody who has a as those of you will know has a, a distinguished reputation in in the study of modern Islam in Britain I mean he's he's been a, a pioneer really going back to the early 1990s and and I think many of you might be aware of his first book Islamic Britain which was actually a, a groundbreaking text in many ways which um, still is standard reading really for anybody who's interested in Muslims in Britain that is one of the first books you have to read and it draws on his re uh, doctoral research but I think uh, it the arguments were extrapolated to engage with many of the issues facing British Muslims at that time in the early 1990s Philip went on to write uh, about 10 years later around 2006-2007 a book his second book Young British and Muslim which was um, actually where I 
after I, uh, its publication, well, actually during the research stage, I met Philip at that point, and you know, Philip didn't know at the time, but I was actually a fan of his work. You know, as an undergraduate student, I, I was really, really impressed with Islamic Britain. I thought, wow. You know, this is written by a non-Muslim, and I thought, wow, you know, where, I mean, at that time, there weren't many Muslims writing so well and with such intimate insight into Muslim communities, and I was very impressed. And uh, little did I know, 20 odd years later, I'd be writing a book with him. So, uh, for me, it's, it was, it's, it's a real uh, honour and, and, and a pleasure, really, to, to have been working with Philip, who I've known now for 10 years. We've We've done quite a lot of um, work together in, in terms of um, Muslims in Britain. We've spoke on various issues through the years. And so Philip approached me about three years ago and, um, in a sense, wanted to do a follow-up to his young British and Muslim and update some of the arguments and review where Islam in Britain is today now in the, in the late 2010s. And uh, here we are three years later. What we've tried to do, um, I think, I think we've achieved is to provide a cutting-edge text which surveys some of the main challenges facing British Muslims today. We obviously, unfortunately for all, often the wrong reasons, Muslims in Britain are in the news pretty much every day and it's, it's negative. It, the, the associations are usually around a set of reoccurring um, Unfortunately, self-perpetuating frames around um, terrorism, radicalization, extremism, or criminality, or longer-standing um, kind of stereotypes and myths around Muslims not integrating Islam being backward and, and somehow unable to cope with modernity, unable to um, live side by side with other faiths in Britain, and, and being somehow a problem religion, and Muslims being a problem people who can't really be fully British. And, and so, if you look, there are, in, there are unfortunately, people, Muslim, within Muslim communities, are people who perpetuate these stereotypes, and they're the ones that tend to get the airtime in, in the media. So. Um, unless you work within Muslim communities, you live within Muslim communities, you have Muslim friends, you're not likely to get the other side of the story, from the mainstream press certainly. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasant surprise when you actually read something positive and constructive in the mainstream press. And I'm making a generalisation because, you know, um, things have got better in recent years. So we try to, what we try to do is drawing our own, on our own, expertise and um, certain insights. I mean, Philip has been working with Muslim communities, as Martin has said, for over 30 years uh, as an academic, as somebody who's led interfaith dialogue. Um, he, he, he's very well qualified to speak around the subject area as an outsider, but also a kind of an insider. Whereas myself, somebody who is a believer from the Muslim communities, I'm offering a, a slightly different perspective. But our our I think what we, what we have in common is the shared concern around the present and the future of Muslims in Britain. And unfortunately, um, again, when we talk about media representation, there are very few people who can speak about Muslims in a balanced way. Uh, we're not here to sentimentalise or, or offer apologetics around Islam and Muslims. We're not here. To, no, we haven't written that kind of book. It's not pro-Islam in that sense. We're not here to, you know, whitewash any anything. At the same time, we're not here to demonise. We're here to present an evidence-based, factual analysis of uh, Islam in Britain. And 
um, I think we've we've managed to do that. Philip's a Christian, I'm a Muslim, but we our our interests and our approach overlaps, you know. And I think hopefully you you that will come across uh, in today's presentation. And I'm I'm hoping uh, I think I'm hoping most of you will go out and buy the book as well. So please please you know you're welcome to do so. Um, and so yeah, I mean we we've we've written this book really for. Not necessarily fellow academics. We've actually written, we've tried to target a broad audience: people who work with Muslim communities, uh, people who work in education, school teachers, people at college, at university level, uh, social workers, the police, and so on. We're, so we're aiming for a broad, primarily non-Muslim audience, I guess. But at the same time, I think people from Muslim communities. I know the feedback I've had. Uh, from fellow Muslims is that they're really keen to know what we've got to say because they're familiar with Philip's work, they know some of my work and so they want to know what, what, what we've got to say. So, um, the last thing I'd like to say in terms of introducing the work, we've focused on, um, we, it's, it's about five chapters, the book, we've focused on areas which we think are the most pertinent and it's not to say that there aren't other issues I mean so I guess you could say well why haven't we talked about X Y and Z we've, pri we've prioritized certain themes because we think they are going to be the most um, important and perhaps influential uh, dynamics and characteristics which Muslims are themselves trying to deal with in the coming in the coming years so certainly when, we, when we're talking about the uh, issues around religious authority, when we're talking about Muslims uh, participating in the public sphere, uh, when we're talking about the importance of Muslim women changing communities from the inside out, I think a lot of people aren't aware of that. Um, a lot of people outside Muslim communities won't be aware of what a massive change is taking, um, uh, taking place amongst second and third generation Muslims and how they are shaping communities for the better. And these are the things that we've tried to highlight in our book. Um, really open different windows into British Islam today. So hopefully you'll find something of interest. So I'll hand it over to Philip. Thanks, thanks Sadiq. Um, as, as Martin said, introducing it, you know, this is my third book and I thought I can't get away with another book called Young British and Muslim. I'm not young and I'm not a Muslim and so it's a great it's a joy to have a, you know, a friend, a Muslim friend co-author this and, and also feeling the time is now right to hand over the baton to a new generation of British Muslim academics and Sadiq is part of this now I think this wave of young competent you know British Muslim academics so I, I, I feel the discipline is in safe hands as it were so I'm delighted to have done, to have co-authored this sort of book. And I think in the present climate it's very important that, that a Christian and a Muslim are seen to be able to collaborate on such a book, which challenges some of the myths around. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to sort of back-to-back -back take each chapter and pluck out a few stories to give you a sense of some of the themes. We're not going to tell you what the, what's totally in the book, otherwise you won't buy it. Mm -hmm. we, want you, we want you to read it. But we hope we can whet your appetite in the next 40 minutes. So we'll, we'll go on to the next slide. And basically, we, we start the book and I'll, with a story. And I, I will quote from the book from, from time to time. We, we start the book by reviewing and analysing a fascinating public consultation in Bradford 
organised by the Muslim Women's Council in 2015 to discuss their proposal to establish the first all-women's managed mosque in the UK as well as a centre of intellectual excellence for Muslim women. Now that was a you know, fascinating, provocative um, initiative. And of course behind that initiative, that specific initiative, was in a city like Bradford, which is not in any way unusual in this regard, the paucity of women involved in virtually any of the city's 100 plus mosques on the management committee. So women felt marginalised. And this is part of a larger issue exercising the Muslim world at the moment, is gender equality and what to do with that and how you retrieve that, so to say, and express that Islamically. And what is fascinating is how the Muslim Women's Council, which actually comprises some of the most able and most successful Muslims of either generation, of, of either gender in Bradford, um, so a picture here, the top picture is Managora, who ran a multi-million pound round trees project in Bradford. And then underneath is an official who was the highest ranking officer in the local authority. And I can't resist this, one of the third key players was one of my best MA students in peace studies, a young Muslim woman who led the anti-war movement. So these are really impressive young women, actually. And what I think, you know, in a way, they're raising acutely the question of where is all religious authority located in the Muslim world? And I want just to talk a little bit about who they invited, because it was actually a brilliant selection of three people. So let me just read a little bit in the book about these three individuals they chose to commend the project. Firstly, they chose a respected traditional scholar from Oxford, where else? Sheikh Akram Nadwi. And over a 10-year period, this soft-spoken Indian scholar working at an Oxford Islamic think tank had compiled a 40-volume dictionary of women scholars of Hadith. In so doing, he had uncovered a long-forgotten history of female Islamic scholarship, blotted out by centuries of cultural conservatism. And this included women who lectured, dispensed fatwas, and travelled in pursuit of religious knowledge. Now this was a superbly clever, uh, you know, intelligent selection because they wanted to bring on board the traditionalists. And Sheikh Akram Nadwi is a very fine traditional scholar. So he could begin to address the reservations that constituency would have. And then the second scholar was Dr. Shuruk Nagib, an Egyptian scholar trained in Islamic law and anthropology who teaches Islamic studies at, Lan at Lancaster University. She built on the Sheikh's presentation, providing further examples of women active and vis visible in mosques from the earliest days, and also the fact that they were involved in Islam's master science, thick Islamic jurisprudence. And she also made the point that gen gender segregation of prayer, spare, of prayer space, a familiar feature of many mosques in Britain, is often rooted in the sectarian particularities of an imported South Asian Islam. Again, a very interesting and sharp comment. So again, uh, a very fine academic and a woman academic who has, of course, it, you know, in a way, independent tenure and doesn't have to worry about what is said about her in the mosques, put crudely. And then thirdly was Dilwar Hussain, a British Muslim of Bangladeshi heritage, who 
who for two decades has worked as a researcher and consultant to government departments and the private sector on social policy, identity and Islamic reform. And he argued on the need for Muslims to reintegrate two key institutions, the family and the mosque, and posed sharp questions. For instance, what does he say to Muslim children when they accompany their parents to the mosque, only to find that there is no provision or inadequate provision for their mother? What subliminal message is this giving to male children about the status of women, not least in a community where female students are now out-achieving male students? Now, I, I thought actually that was a brilliant selection of three voices. And what is fascinating is that the Muslim Women's Council could have been exasperated with the male leadership in Bradford, given their systematic exclusion from the mosques. But they maintained an open and courteous dialogue with the, with the Bradford Council for Mosques. But they maintained their independence. That I think is very important. And also, what they were doing when it comes to religious authority, they were not confining themselves to any sectarian or ethnic community, but drawing on the vast array now of talent in this country. So, a distinguished Indian scholar, traditional British scholar of Bengali background, and a female Egyptian scholar. Now, I think that's, that's a very interesting way of proceeding, because what they were trying to do was keep a conversation going and address some of the deep fractures in contemporary Muslim communities, not least between the mosque and the world of Adal Alum, the seminary, and academia, as well as other fractures, generational fractures, and we'll, we'll revisit some of the intergenerational tensions, but also opportunities, a new leadership that's throwing up subsequently. So that's why we, you know, we deliberately chose to start there and that's part of a larger narrative of a book, the importance of Muslim women, second, third generation, professional, educated Muslim women, increasingly, uh, as we talk in peace studies, are the agents of change. Great, thank you. So, as Philip says, we, we <coughs> he opened that. What have I done with it? Sorry, yeah, as Philip was saying. I'm a bit of a love light, actually, I have to, have to confess. <laughs> No problem. Yeah, so there, there are, uh, I think that the opening chapter really sets the tone for the rest, rest of the book and what we're trying to do in terms of highlighting the significance of a internal change that is taking place, which is really largely invisible to outsiders. And I think, um, as Philip said, women are, Muslim women are behind the scenes, uh, have always been behind the scenes, I guess, and somehow not not necessarily wanting to be, but increasingly now what we're seeing is uh, the visible presence of Muslim female leadership. And that's something that we return to, uh, it's a common thread throughout the book, the importance of Muslim women and how they are leading the change. Um, the next chapter really is about um, giving um, readers a an overview and I won't go into too, too much detail here because there's lots of facts and figures in this ch chapter. But what we try to convey here is the fact that the British Muslim community, like any community, is undergoing um, rapid change. Um, according to the last census of 2011, which is obviously now you know, seven years out of date, there was around 2.7 million Muslims in Britain. Uh, people who had identified as Muslims and there are obviously 
questions you could say well how accurate was it I mean there, there's a certain amount of underreporting but we, you know it was pretty much uh, an accurate figure um, eight years on seven eight years on now the figure is the number of Muslims in Britain is probably closer to three million if not more than three million now, if you compare that with the 2001 census, if the analysis of the figures shows an increase in population of over a million, so that's obviously uh, uh, indicative of the growth in the in the community, and it's been a year-on-year -year growth. If you go back to the uh, the 1991 figures, again, you'll see. A, a, a dramatic rise. So Muslim, what, what we can obviously take away from that is that Muslim communities are growing at a relatively larger or greater speed than the rest of the population. So um, currently that would make something like, um, uh, well, the total population, I think it's about three, five, five percent, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, these figures are always somewhat, um, somewhat, uh, uh, guesstimates at best really because you never really know and, and and what we try to do in this chapter is is to identify who are the British Muslims because really that term itself is 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 very um it's, it's, a, it's an, a, an amorphous term which doesn't really say a lot because there isn't a particular profile there is nobody is a British Muslim in general um, what we do know in terms of the ethnic breakdowns that British Islam is predominantly of South Asian heritage and that is to say either f uh, mainly from uh, Pakistan slash uh, Kashmir, uh, from India and Muslims from uh, Bangladesh and so we're talking around about 66%, around two-thirds are from, from uh, South Asian heritage the rest are really uh, from the Middle East um, Africa, North, North Africa, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and pretty much rest of the world, uh, Southeast Asia and so on. But what you'll find uh, is that every European state has a particular ethnic uh, composition and, and a particular complexion, if you like. So e Islam in Britain is often represented, and here it's accurate, as, as an Asian, predominantly Asian phenomenon, but it would be a mistake to think all British Muslim, Muslims are Asian. They are clearly not. And that actually has become a, uh, a bone of contention internally within communities where some of the ethnic groupings feel that, that they are underrepresented. Um, that three million figure of mainly Asian Muslims often excludes non-Asian Muslims, so Muslims from Arab, Arabic backgrounds, Muslims from African backgrounds, uh, Muslims uh, from convert backgrounds as well. I mean, there's something like 100,000 plus white English and other ethnic con converts to Islam as well. And so that's something a lot of people don't know. Um, so Islam in Britain is a multicultural, multi-ethnic phenomena. Um, what we've tried to do in this chapter also is to point to the differentiated uh, educational and social economic profiles we can make some general observations around the fact for example Muslims tend to live in around 10 of the major cities so obviously London Birmingham
Bradford, Manchester, and then we've got the smaller towns in, in Lancashire, the, the Burnleys, the Boltons, the Blackburns, and so on. And obviously we've got Muslims in Scotland and uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland and Wales. Um, and two, the latter two often complain that when we talk about British Muslims, they often forget, you know, um, Muslims from Scotland and, and um, uh, certainly from Ireland. So we, we, we haven't, we haven't um, tried to cover every single community because it just wouldn't be practical. But what we've tried to do is, is represent some of the main dynamics and features. And what you see is this rapid increase in population in the last in the last 10-15 years you have a generation that's grown up really and this is a significant point who've grown up in the age of the war on terror people young people who've grown up knowing nothing but hearing about the 7-7 bombings you know British Islam if anything is a young young population you know, we've got something like 50% are under the age of 25, and that's indicative of global trends where Muslims are um, young and open to change. They are they are very much making a break from their parents' generation, and therefore, what we see is um, very very interesting dynamics, um, which we 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 cover later on. But at the same time, we have to temper our our observations with the fact that. Muslim communities, majority of them, are living in some of the most economically, uh, socio-economically disadvantaged communities as well. You know, um, Muslim communities. Uh, you know, and, and there are various studies where you can uh, you can f look into yourself in terms of issues around um, housing. Um, general poverty levels, a lack, lack of opportunity, which has a knock-on effect in terms of educational development, educational achievement, which again has a corresponding uh, subsequent effect on uh, le uh, levels of higher education and employment opportunities and social mobility in general. So we've got various parallel um, phenomena taking place where you have an increasing layer of the of the community that is becoming more educated that is becoming more successful are people who are becoming professionals and are very very well um, uh, uh, integrated and uh, articulate and are making their contributions but at the same time we have a very a significant significant chunk of the community that are struggling these are young people who aren't going to university, young people who aren't necessarily finding employment and are being left behind in a sense. And I think, you know, that raises lots of questions around our responsibility to society in terms of government policy and in terms at a local authority level as well, what are we doing? What are we doing in terms of ensuring equality, educational and economic equality? And um, despite this, I think what we've, ha what we've tried to do in the book is highlight the fact that young people have overcome these um, barriers and, and, if you like, uh, um, challenges and, and actually have made some remarkable achievements, you know. Um, we we, we keep, keep using this phrase, uh, generational shift, generational change, because this is exactly what's happening. And I think certainly since Philip's last book, you know, we, in this last 10, 11 years, I mean, there's so much has changed um, which is positive and which can be celebrated and which we highlight in the latter chapters around 
some of the cultural accomplishments and again what we call um, you know uh, uh, Muslim cool um, you know Muslims making their mark in all, all areas of society um, you know look, people don't know are not necessarily aware of the massive economic contribution British Muslims make uh, to the wider society. I mean, there is literally a billion pound, more, you know, several billion pounds worth of uh, uh, value that British Muslims are doing, you know, are, are contributing through their various uh, financial and business con- uh, businesses, and you know, that's huge. Muslims are disproportionately represented positive this is a positive thing in the national health for example the number of Muslim doctors and nurses and so on and so on so these are all things to be celebrated but at the same time we have you know we have um, a number of difficulties which are structural but also attitudinal in terms of the way society views Muslims so we have these two things running parallel and we've tried to unravel some of that and understand how that's come about um, I guess for most for, for, uh, people, you know, the thing that's on their mind, at the back of their mind, which are, you know, often that wondering, well, you know, can we really ask, is what's going on with all of this terrorism business, you know, what's, what's, why is it that so many Muslims seem to be getting involved in um, violent extremism and, and, you know, last year we had, you know, these horrific attacks taking place in London and, and Manchester and so on, and it, I think, you know, I think lots of people in society are understandably anxious about the, their fellow Muslim citizens. You know what, what's going on here, and, and this is something we tackle later on, and I will, I will speak to. But I think to f- frame Muslims, to narrow them down just to people who are involved in so anti-social behaviour or elite, you know, uh, potentially violent behavior that endangers the rest of society misses the bigger picture and I think that's really important if you don't have that working knowledge of and, and knowing Muslims you're not necessarily going to understand what's going on I think this is I think one of the great needs of our time is this, this idea of getting to know one another I mean if you look at some of the there's some very interesting studies around levels of um, uh, social integration in terms of house, housing and residential mix. So one of the, one of the things Muslims are often accused of is, is being segregated and, and, and living amongst themselves in ethnic uh, silos. Um, do they really? Do Muslims like to just live amongst themselves and, and, and not want to integrate into the rest of society? Well, the answer is actually yes and no. And in certain, in certain places, the fact that Muslims are highly concentrated in dense mono-ethnic or bicultural areas is not necessarily because they want to, it's because it's a legacy of the actual, uh, the, the historical legacy of immigration and housing going back 30, 40 years. And the fact that Muslims who arrived here in the 1960s, basically my father's generation, didn't have a choice. They didn't have a choice. They were basically, they had to live in some of the poorest areas of uh, industrial Britain, you know, but things have moved on. Um, however, there are issues, uh, no doubt. Some people preferring to live with people who naturally speak the same language, share the same faith, and uh, ha- have um, there's a certain amount of familiarity. But I don't think that's unique. You know, we 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 forget that there is a natural human tendency 
to want to associate with people who look like ourselves, who, who uh, you know, how, who share the same faith, who speak the same language, and Muslims aren't the only ones who uh, are drawn to, uh, you know, their own, if you like. Yeah, I don't need to go into examples, do I? I, mean, I think we all know that people do that. But often I think, unfairly, Muslims are targeted as somehow, you know, they, they self-segregate. This, this phrase isn't, isn't sociologically accurate at all. And, and, there are, and we, we, we um, reference the... the growing number of studies to show that Muslims actually are moving out, are living in ethnically diverse areas. But there again, there's an interesting response to this. When Muslims have, bec- have the ability to live in nicer areas and what's happened as a result, a lot of things, I mean, you know, we, we, we don't get into too much, but there's an uncomfortable reality which, uh, an unspoken, I guess, in terms of polite public discourse around uh, uh, racism and the fact that a lot of communities, if you look at the, the fact that in areas like Bradford, Oldham, Burnley, when Asian people, when black people first came in the 1960s, the, those areas became mono-ethnic or predominantly non-white because white people moved out. You know, that's an uncomfortable fact, which, you know, a lot of us don't either, either, we're not aware of it, we don't like to talk about it. So, white flight is real, and it's still happening today as well. So that is a partial explanation of why some communities are densely non-white, if you like. But that, that, isn't, that isn't representative of the whole of the UK. And what you find is that it's a mix. So large cities like London, Birmingham, Bradford, and so on, are very cosmopolitan, and that has an impact on the way those Muslims behave and interact with their non-Muslim citizens, whereas in some places like Oldham, Bradford, you know, things are different. There are, there are differences, and we've tried to tease out what those differences are and how they've occurred and how they affect the relationships between Muslims and non-Muslims, and in terms of the challenges that it creates as well. So now I'm going to hand it back to Philip, and he's going to talk about one of the challenges, which is the issue of religious authority and how Muslims have been responding to this. Thanks, Sadiq. Yeah, so we have a chapter then on the Islamic seminary. Um, we call it between crisis and, and renewal. And, and one of the interesting things in researching for the book is that we began to discover even in a tradition which is often regarded as fairly rigid and very ultra-conservative, the Diabundis, that there's change coming, and it's interesting. So we wanted to start by contrasting two young imams, British-educated, in the same northern Darul Uloom or seminary. One, one was, is called Mufti Sefal Islam, and he's, he has his own seminary, he has a couple of schools in Bradford, and he was trained in one of his large Darul Alooms, Islamic seminaries. I'll use the word seminary for short. Um, and stayed on and did extra qualifi- gained an extra qualification as a legal specialist. Hence his title, Mufti. He gives fatwas, he gives legal decisions. And, and what is very interesting about um, Sefal Islam is he's very comfortable within recycling, if you will, a South Asian Islam. His mentors, those, if you go into his bookshops, 
are South Asian Muslim scholars, like the distinguished Dear Bundy scholar in Pakistan, Muf uh, Chief Justice Taki Usmani. And his fatwas, Sefal Islam's fatwas, sim often simply repeat Taki Usmani's fatwas, which were generated in a radically different environment. And, and what is interesting is that I'll give you an example of what he says about family planning. He has a book of fatwas, came out a few years ago in, in English. So there's a query, is family planning allowed? And he's uncompromising. Poverty or fear of poverty is not a valid reason for contraception, nor is it permissible to practice contraception on account of not being able to provide for large families. According to the Holy Quran, there is not a living creature, but its provision is the responsibility of God. Nor is contraception permitted on the basis it is fashionable to have small families. The fashion to have small families is the practice of other nations. The Holy Prophet said whoever imitates a group becomes one of them. In addition, a small family is in direct conflict with the instruction of a holy prophet who said, marry those women who are affectionate and reproduce in abundance. Verily, I will compete with you in large numbers over other nations on the day of judgment. Now, this is a somewhat coded way of saying that to copy non-Muslim Britons and have small families is to become like them, in brackets, hell-bound unbelievers. The second comment makes sense when we recall that in a pre-modern world, large numbers equate to power. But the Mufti seems totally unaware of how such comments might be construed by non-Muslims in a British context. He also recycles intra-Muslim sectarianism. Those who know this world, dear Bundy Brelwi, sectarianism is simply recycled. And there's very little warrant in his book of fatwas for relating well to people of other faiths. Indeed, he worries about the inroads of religious and cultural practices associated with Christianity. So in a booklet entitled The Prophet Jesus, unbelievers condemned to eternal hellfires include those who say Jesus is the Son of God. Buying or accepting Christmas presents and sending Christmas cards are all alike forbidden. So basically, the overall logic of this book is, is in a way he wants to create a parallel world as far as is possible, minimising interaction with non-Muslims. Now, if you contrast this young Dear Bundy scholar, first generation to be trained in Britain, with Sheikh um, Shams Doha, and it's a picture of him here, top one. He's also same ethnicity, Bengali, trained in the same seminary, but also two other seminaries, one in Bangladesh and one in Nottingham. And he has a very different style. And interestingly, unlike um, Sefal Islam, he didn't stay in the seminary and do further education, become a mufti. He did an MA in Islamic studies at London University, Birkbeck College. Now, as we'll see, that I think is incredibly significant. And unlike, unlike Sefal Islam, who op op operates in what Sadiq was talking about, an ethno-Muslim enclave in Bradford, he's in a, a hyper-diverse city like London. And he soon became aware that, that the training of the imams and the seminaries, whether in Bangladesh or in Britain, were out of context, were not training to connect with a new generation of British Muslims. So he set up the Ibrahim College. Notice the term, not Darul Uloom, but Ibrahim College. Basically to train a new generation. And he chose for the medium of instruction, Arabic and English. 
not Urdu, quite deliberately. He said the problem with Urdu is it carried into Britain a very negative history of South Asian-British relations. And he needed to break away from that. And secondly, and radically, he insisted on co-education. Now, in terms of dress code, you have in the class men and women. The women can wear niqab or head veils or not. But co-education was also very significant. And he has lots of, of um, YouTube, well worth watching his YouTube sort of uh, videos, as it were. And he's, he's addressing really difficult issues. He, has, you know, he worries about rank, virulent, intra-Muslim sectarianism. And he wants to address that and retrieve a proper ethics and etiquette in the Islamic tradition to address these differences of opinion. Secondly, he's deeply worried about the absence of safe spaces for young British Muslims to talk about their doubts and their questions about Islam. And he talks about that. And he doesn't blame them, he blames the community for not providing spaces where they can articulate their questions and their doubts. Because he says we are losing our young people. Now that's a taboo subject. He's a very courageous young man. And also he has pioneered work with this institution in getting together clergy and young imams on a summer school to train together. So a much more open attitude to wider society. So you can see the contrast I'm making. And I think the critical, there's two critical factors. Is, is English. And the fact that Shams has an MA in Islamic Studies, he can access Islamic scholarship in English, and he invites some of the best, because he's based in London, he invites some of the most able and interesting Muslim scholars, particularly from the West, in, from America. And latterly he's had Professor Jonathan Brown, a very fine Muslim scholar in the States, and Ibrahim Musa, one of the best scholars also. So you see already, even in what one might consider a very closed world, You've got, you know, those who actually go this next step, move out of the comfort zone, get training, as he has done in a British university, are pushing the boundaries. And then I just want to talk very briefly about two other initiatives which are embedded in British universities. One is a friend of mine, a Turkish scholar, Abdullah Shaheen, who I think has developed one of the most important pieces of work in this country, research, and has developed a pioneering MED program at Warwick University. Now what was very interesting, as a Turkish scholar, he was trained in a secular university in Ankara in Islamic studies, he then did a PhD in Birmingham, and has done similar work in Kuwait. And what he says, across the Muslim world there's a crisis of religious formation. And that's what he wants to address. And he did some really interesting research among young British Muslims, sixth formers in Birmingham. And what he discovered was he developed a typology of commitment and exploration. And what he argued, there were three responses. One response was what he called um, a foreclosed identity. Young Muslims who were committed but had no real exploration they were simply rehearsing what they'd been given by home in the mosque. So it was very brittle Islam, couldn't cope with challenge and questions. Then he talked about diffuse, young Muslims all over the place, you know, womanizing one day, born-again Muslims the next, as it were, but no real grounding in their tradition, so no real commitment and no exploration. And then he talked about the most interesting category were those who had an exploratory identity. These are British kids, of course they've got an, they want to explore the relevance of what they've been given. 
And they were the most interesting category. Now, interestingly, most of those with an exploratory identity were women. And he did the same research in Kuwait with the same results. It's a fascinating piece of work. And so he developed the MED, particularly for young British-trained imams, who he said the problem with them, their, their religious formation, meant that most of those were foreclosed. An authoritarian train pattern of training. No personal agency to question and to critique, but simply to re reproduce the wisdom of the past, so to say. And so he's developed this fascinating work, you know, Ahmed, where he wants to give young imams and those in mosques, schools, Muslim schools, the historic and contextual skills to make sense of a tradition. Because he, he reckons one of the weakest aspects of traditional Islam is a lack of historical contextualization. So I, I think Shaheen is, you know, is the most interesting, I think has developed the most interesting research in his book on Islamic education is well worth reading. Because he kept a diary where he showed the learning curve of these young men who started off with a foreclosed identity and how over a year's MED program they became much more self-critical and developed a new confidence to revisit their tradition and re retrieve aspects of the tradition which they weren't aware of. And then the final person is, is, is um, Tim Winter, or Abdullah Hakim Murad, in Cambridge, the Cambridge Muslim College, and he started in 2009 an interesting diploma in contextualizing Islamic thinking for, again, young imams. And uh, Tim Winter is one of a, a, a number of, of leading Sufi converts in the West who are often referred to as traditional Islamists, or, or traditional, they're bearers of traditional Islam. And you want to know about these read the book, but also on my right is a specialist on this, actually. So it's a fascinating, he's trying to retrieve a kind of Sufi-inflected Islam, which is more intellectually rigorous and activist. And I think the challenge for Tim Winter is he himself is a, is a committed Sufi. Can he marry the confessional and the academic? And he wants to develop this diploma into a fully-fledged BA program. And the critical issue is, you know, I think he's got to demonstrate he can marry the confessional with the academic, if he's going to get accreditation, I think. So those are just four little windows into very much a changing scene. Thank you. I think the key word is here about contextualization and throughout the book we do try to demonstrate how and this is what really makes it exciting, I think, is the fact that Muslims, the second and the third generation, are contextualizing their tradition. They're trying to make Islam relevant for those who are, uh, if you like, for whom religion is important, who feel they want to identify with their faith. And I think this is important as well to mention that there is a, there is a impression that somehow that Muslims, most Muslims are somehow um, practicing observant. They're not, actually. The reality is most young British Muslims don't actually practice their faith. It's more of a sentimental, emotional attachment. If you ask them, are you a Muslim? They'll say yes. Well, how seriously do you take your faith? Well, you know, do you pray? Uh, maybe. On Fridays? You know, that's the kind of response you'll get. I, you know, they'll fast in Ramadan and that's about it. So we, we've got a, like a running joke. They'll be called Ramadan Muslims or Friday Muslims, you know. 
bit like people who just go to church on Sunday and don't do anything else the rest of the year or maybe just go on Christmas Day perhaps. So, you know, we have that spectrum of practice. There are many ways of uh, being a Muslim. There are many types of British Muslim and I think What's what we've tried to f- uh, focus on is those Muslims that are at the forefront of changing their society, uh, their communities, and which has a knock-on effect on the whole of the British Muslim community. Now, this chapter here, and I, I don't want to spend too much time because it's quite a, a lengthy and, 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 and sensitive subject matter, which I think obviously everybody wants to know, so you have to buy the book for this reason. You're not going to get this information anywhere else. Um, is this is this contextualising what, what what we what we understand by um, violent Muslim radicalisation? I mean, it's unfortunate over the last 17 years. You know, we our um, our public consciousness and and you know perhaps subconscious association and fear is around Muslim violent extremism. These radical Muslims who are going around threatening to bring down the West and destroy destroy British way of life and whatever that means and, you know, impose Sharia law on all of us. You know, um, I think, you know, without <coughs> sounding too somber, I think what we've tried to do in this chapter is basically give you a sense of uh, perspective and explain and explore the origins of this this extremism. And for, for what we've what we've tried to do is dissect what these extremists are actually wanting to do. What is it that they want? Why do they do what they do? And what are they hoping to achieve? And uh, what I would say in this short period of time is that you know. Um, the difficulties that we're facing now in terms of security and um, trying to counter uh, terrorism um, must be understood in a longer historical continuum around um, the West, well, Britain's relationship with Muslim-majority societies over the last hundred years or possibly two hundred years, and uh, how that how that fast forwards into the late twentieth century, and. You know, there are different, uh, broadly speaking, two intellectual positions, established positions on this. So those, uh, there are academics and security specialists who want to zoom in on what they would call the ideological uh, attractions of violent extremism. And they'll talk about Al-Qaeda, they'll talk about ISIS, and they'll talk about jihadism and as, as being a ideological um, uh engine that somehow recruits contaminates young impressionable minds and draws them into this into this into this type of um, uh, worldview and whilst that certainly exists it doesn't tell the bigger picture the the context and the ecology the social economic uh, background to it i mean people focus in on theology but they forget sociology so what we've tried to do here is give you a sociological and historical background to the emergence of violent extremism and again it's 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 makes for uncomfortable reading i guess for some people who perhaps are not aware that the british state uh, during colonialism and after post-colonial uh, kind of um, handing over if you like to uh, the independence movements and in the in in the last 50 60 years left a legacy a very toxic legacy where we've seen uh, an unfortunate um, 
um, tendency towards authoritarianism in many parts of the Muslim world. Certainly in the Middle East, I think um, it's, it's been a very difficult um, legacy, not only through the the, um, the aftermath of the creation of, of, of um, Israel and Palestine, but also ongoing um, tensions uh, are the, around uh, the state of Kashmir. Um, and uh, throughout throughout uh, North Africa and the Middle East, there's 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 a, there's a, there's, a, there's a longer story, and I think those of you who are familiar with the area will know what I'm talking about. But it's not just back there in history; it's happening today. What we often forget is that the origins of the modern jihadi movement go back before 9/11, before September the 11th, and the the horrific attacks on uh, the Twin Towers in New York. Um, Believe it or not, and this is not conspiracy theory, this is facts. These are historical facts which you can look up for yourself um, in declassified documents as well as if you have any interest in some of the history uh, literature and the politics literature out there. The British state actively encouraged and, s and supported violent Muslim movements from the 1950s onwards. I mean, this is, this is something that people don't like to talk about. You know, so to give one example, we we call people who take up arms and use violence to achieve a political uh, objective terrorists today. But you know, we looked, for example, in Afghanistan, we have we've had the problem of the Taliban over the last uh, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19 years. But. You know, some of us have very short memories, but we forget that before 2001, Britain and America were actively supporting the the predecessors to the Taliban, because we, at that time, felt the Afghan Mujahideen, the freedom fighters, as they were called then, they weren't called terrorists, were helping to achieve the geostrategic objective of fighting communism. And that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a history that's that's you know can't be denied you know and we we need to be we need to be honest about that when people when when some of the cold the um, the the planners the cold war planners and and some of the politicians are confronted with that they'll say well yes that was then and this is now and you know it's all different but you can't you can't just go into a country you know pump in massive amounts of military hardware and and finance and 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 play different factions against each other and then walk away thinking well nothing's going to happen and this is what's happening it's the, these guys come back and, and and they bit the hand that fed them uh, in one sense and unfortunately it's not it's not ancient history it's very much alive and well we are still today i'm afraid to say as a state we are interfering parts of the world because we are achieving the national interest, whatever that means. We are continuing to supply weapons to very questionable regimes. We, I mean, the arms industry is very profitable for, for Britain. Okay, We unfortunately, we like to promote democracy in certain parts of the world and not in others. And, you know, these, these actions have consequences. And that's not to say there aren't problems within those countries, but certainly... If you look at what Osama bin Laden said about 9/11, and what these 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 um, violent extremists say about ISIS and the last what's happened in the last four years, there are patterns. There are patterns there, I and mean, I'm not justifying in no way. Please do not misunderstand. I'm not justifying their behaviour, but 
you know, because we're trying to understand what, what happened and what is going on now, and it's a real, it's a real mess. But what I'm trying to say is, is that to understand the, this problem of violent extremism and radicalization, we need to look at and be honest about our own responsibilities and our own actions in, in, in that part of the world. And then that will bring us to a more fuller picture of what is happening today. Unfortunately, if you like, those are the external geostrategic factors. But internally here in the UK, uh, the chapter talks about how certain Muslims who came uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, people who were exiles of some of these uh, religious militant movements, they set up shop and they planted the seeds of the jihadi mindset amongst second generation Muslims. And this is part of the internal problem where Muslims in Britain did not face off and deal with this internal challenge. You know, there was unfortunately a, a a bit of uh, people, people didn't take, but didn't really understand what was going on, didn't take them serious. So if you remember, not so long ago, you had Abu Hamza, the hook, who was on the, the media regularly spouting off and foaming at the mouth. You had Omar Bakri Muhammad shouting how he was going to make, you know, Big Ben into a minaret and take over, you know, uh, the palace and, and so on and make it into a mosque and so on and so on. And you had his protege, um, um, Anjum Chowdhury, who, who's who's foaming at the mouth here in the middle picture about how Sharia will dominate the world. You know, these are things that, you know, there is unfortunate, there's a, there's, there is a collusion there, unfortunately. Why was Anjum Chowdhury not put imprisoned more than 10 years ago when he was actually doing what he was doing? Why wasn't his predecessor uh, in, uh, interrogated and, and, and taken, into, uh, taken into account for what he was doing? There are, there, are, there are toxic legacies here, and I think, you know, there are... There are very, very difficult questions that, that the British state must um, actually answer for here. And so that really does um, kind of set the scene, if you like, for where we are today in the last three to four years where we have had children essentially being drawn to this type of theopolitical madness. And unfortunately, um, the, we've, we've, we've um, highlighted some of these very, very traumatic and, and very sad stories of school children essentially leaving leaving Britain to go and seek some kind of utopic redemption in Syria. You know, they thought there was some magical magical Islamic society that was going to solve all their problems and somehow so, you know, deal with all the complex and difficult issues facing Muslims globally. It didn't happen. The ISIS state is, is almost uh, totally uh, non-existent. It's, it's you know, it's it's a project that has failed, but its legacy again continues to carry on. And unfortunately, even though it's militarily been defeated, it holds an ideological, theological attraction um, because these people who try to recruit young people are operating on the internet, which is beyond the the scope of. Um, uh, you know, they, 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 I mean, this is this is the nature of social media, I guess, and the online world, and so there is an ongoing challenge. So Muslims themselves have to, um, and this is the thing I've, we've tried to conclude the chapter with, is, is that Muslims, and I think this is a really important point to make because often Muslims are accused of not doing enough to challenge extremism. They're often expected to condemn uh, violent uh, acts in in the name of religion. Um, after every atrocity, Muslims are, you know, 
pressured, look, why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you speaking out? Well, they are actually, you just need to pay attention. Muslims have been speaking out against terrorism for a long time. Um, you know, these terrorists represent 0.001% of the community. You know, we've got 3 million or so Muslims. The people who are in, engaged in the, these acts number in the dozens, okay? And there is a, you know, longer, more detailed discussions around the number of people who are potentially vulnerable and so on, and people who've been monitored by the security services. But really, what, I, what we want you to understand is that violent extremism isn't the massive security problem that people are worried about. It really is. We, we, need, to, we need to have some perspective on it. And yes, um, it needs to be challenged. What are Muslims doing? Well, we, we go into that in depth. I mean, we, we, through an analysis of the prevent strategy, the counter-terrorism strategy, and the impact it's having, and we haven't got the time really to go into it too much yet. But um, I think that that chapter will really answer a lot of questions around why, why, is, why is this issue not going away? Okay, and I think it's really important. So handing back to Phil now. To the last couple of chapters. Right, well, um, well, we'll be fairly quick now because we want time for, for questions. You can see we're carried away by our own enthusiasms of the book. So, uh, yeah, and we hope that that enthusiasm will, you know, will make you want to rush out and read it. Um, the next chapter, as you see from the title, is Engaging Democracy and Debating Islam. And we've put up a, you know, a couple of kind of categories there. And one of the topics is, you know, we map the changing, you know, the generational shifts in, in participation of Muslims. And we compare the 89 Satanic Verses um, demo in London, which involved 70,000 Muslims, but largely only Muslims. And, of course, um, that was regarded as a public relations disaster. And it was the importation, it was seen, of salvation, sort of burning effigies, violence, whatever. And, of course, burning a book, most of the Muslims who did that didn't understand European history and know the resonances of book burning in European history. But then it did go on to 2003, you have tens of thousands of, of Muslims involved in the anti-war demonstrations. And there were two lead Muslim organisations involved in that. Small groups, Just Peace, a, a group of City Circle Muslim professionals from London, and the, the um, MAB, a group of Arab Muslims, or Muslims from the Arab world, who felt that their voices often had been overlooked in terms of a profile of Islam in Britain which, which, which simply looks at Islam for a South Asian lens. And what was interesting here were Muslims, as it were, enabling participation in an anti-war movement with a majority of non-Muslims and you know, building bridges across the ethnic and sectarian divides within the community. That I think is just symptomatic of this generational shift so we wanted to signal that. And then there's a very interesting section in a book on different models of what counts as Muslim politics. There's a fascinating female political scientist, Muslim political scientist, Erin Tatari, who's done a wonderful study of three Labour-dominated councils in London, Newham, Brent and Tower Hamlets, and asking how, you know, how have you know, significant Muslim councils impacted local authority policies. And she distinguishes between Newham, which is hugely diverse, and the Muslim councillors reflect that diversity. And she talks about them as being, so to say, bridges, balancers. They both argue for their community and build constructive alliances to serve the well-being of all constituents. And she, she compares that with a very different Muslim profile of Tower Hamlets, where a third of Muslims are Bengali and 40% of white working class, 
but 33 of the 50 plus seats are Bengali and the white working class feel excluded by the importation of, of a kind of patron politics from, from Bangladesh. And she talks about that as a sort of group politics, an aggressive group politics, which isn't very helpful. So again, she has some very interesting, I mean, again, you know, a young, you know, a political scientist from the States, female Muslim scholar, very fine piece of work. But I want, I want to really to conclude on, on one of our main themes, is how Muslim women, educated Muslim women, are impacting public and civic life. Just to flag up, firstly, a few statistics. I mean, it's good to be reminded, the first Muslim female MP is 2010. By 2017, women are in the majority of the 15 MPs. Now, in a very short time, there's an interesting development here. If you look at Muslim academics writing books on Islam, increasing numbers of female academics. The best general textbook is by a Muslim woman, um, Gilead Ray, Professor Gilead Ray of Cardiff. If you read the Muslim Council of Britain, excellent report, Britain by Mus you know, British by Muslims in numbers or whatever, in 2015, the lead young researcher was a female sociologist from Oxford. So wherever you look, or if you think of Muslim public intellectuals, I would say the woman probably, you know, the, the Muslim intellectual with the highest profile, I suspect, is Mona Siddiqui. But that's maybe debatable, possibly Saeed Avasi now. And so we also map how Muslim women broke into politics in a quite a slow, in, in a quite a, a short period. And we talk particularly about Salma Yaqub in Birmingham in respect. Very significant role, actually, in making space for Muslims in British politics, especially young women. And then latterly, Varsi herself as a role model. And I, I, I want to conclude a little bit by talking about Sharia and politics. And our point in the chapter is if democracy and equality before the law is to be inclusive of Muslim women, the question we return to is who can, who can legit legitimately claim to articulate the values and norms of Sharia? Now what is interesting, change is coming. Institutional spaces are being made for Muslim women in political life because they reflect increasingly important constituencies now. The Muslim Women's Council, we started off with the book, we have a large section in the book about an equally significant group in Birmingham, the Muslim Women's Network for the UK, in writing explosive letters to the Prime Minister and Corbyn some couple of years ago about how the mosques in Birmingham and the political Labour politicians, in South Asian Muslim politicians, were systematically excluding able women. I mean, and they really put the cat among the pigeons. They know how to play the media, too. They're, they're very adept, these, these young Muslim women, actually. But I want, to, I want to finish with two little illustrations, really. In, we need to be reminded that in setting up the independent review in May 16 to map the number and evaluate the practices of Sharia councils, the then Home Secretary, Theresa May, of course, chose as its chair an academic and specialist in Islamic law, a woman. Professor Mona Siddiqui. And similarly, it's illuminating to look at those invited to witness as witnesses to give evidence at the first session in October 2016 of the parallel Parliamentary Home Affairs Committee inquiry into Sharia councils. Of ten witnesses attending its three sessions, eight were women who comprised the chief executive of a Muslim women's organisation in Rochdale, 
the Birmingham group I've mentioned already, the Muslim Women's Network, a spokesperson for One Law for All in London, an umbrella group including British Muslims for Secular Democracy, and a senior fellow of the European Foundation for Democracy, Dr. Elham Manea, a political scientist of Yemeni background, who completed a four-year study of Sharia councils in, in Britain. And when we mention women involved, we mustn't forget the two Muslim MPs on that committee, Nusrat Ghani, a Conservative, and Naz Shah, a Labour, both Muslim women. So what do we have here? Here we have women active in public and presuming to adjudicate on what is or is not to count as Islamic law and its conformity to democratic norms. A quiet revolution. Yes, quiet revolution indeed. Um, I was actually going to put on a, a flashy uh, YouTube video for you, but I don't think we've got the time uh, just to demonstrate this uh, this uh, um, revolution. Yeah, revolution sounds like a strong word, but that's that's what's happening actually. And I guess if you're not familiar, uh, you, you're not aware of what's taking place amongst young people, the under 30s. I mean, it's really exciting. Um, what we've done in this chapter is just map some of those um, some of those emerging trends and what we're trying to highlight here is the fact that this generation of mainly people under 30 um, are actually redefining what it means to be uh, a, Muslim, a British Muslim. These are people who are writers, uh, you know, novelists, journalists, academics, uh, playwrights, these are people who are poets, photographers, visual artists, we've got people who are working in entertainment, uh, in the media, I mean the fact there are a number of Muslim comedians, stand-up comedians, I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with that, we've got a whole generation of um, uh, 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 musicians uh, using all the various different genres who are basically articulating and exploring what it means to be British and Muslim and are able to successfully marry the two and I think for some people that might be a surprise um, and you know this is the thing I, I, I guess we, what we're trying to I mean one small chapter isn't really enough to, to really uh, to, to illustrate this really exciting development I think if you look at the bottom slide here, you can see it's alternating. It's it's the work of a, um, a Pakistani Muslim uh, photographer, Mathab Hussein, who's, who's, who's those pictures are, uh, are drawn from his um, photographic uh, display, and it's it's really uh, it's very interesting actually. Um, so some people, commentators, have called this um, one person a book worth reading actually by Shalina Jan Muhammad, uh, Generation M and how young Muslims are uh, redefining Islam. Uh, this Generation M are basically millennials or slightly older than millennials, millennials people who are come of age in the last few years, uh, born just before 2000. I mean, you know, you might recognize the face on the, on the right here. Um, any One Direction fans here? I don't know. Perhaps not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Zayn, that's right. And on, on the left you have uh, an iconic uh, hijabi uh, stylist. Um, uh, I've got her name now. Um, Pearl Daisy, her real name is Amina. Now, 
they're, they're just some of the faces that are really speaking to this second generation. This, this, they are second generation or third generation themselves, and they they are basically British young people. This is the thing. They're not, you know, their Muslimness is a part of their identity, but they're more British in a sense in that their tastes, their their values, their interests, their hobbies, the music that they listen to, the food that they eat. It's very British, you know. Um, and this is what people don't often understand. It's, it's kind of frustrating for these young people because they're always asked, being asked to demonstrate your Britishness. You know, you know, prove your, prove, it, prove it to us that you're British. But they're, you know, saying, "What are you talking about? What does Britishness even mean? What do you, what, what do you mean?" Because we speak English. You know, we watch the same f- films and uh, we listen to the same music as our non-Muslim uh, uh, friends. You know, and, and people often forget that they're young people. But these young people are dynamic and they are open as Phil was saying you know they are questioning authority they I mean as young people do they sometimes rebel against their parents generation but there's a, there's a, there's an interesting dialogue taking place and it's resulting in new developments in the arena of art and culture and creating what we uh, what's been called Muslim cool and I think it's something that um, I think you're going to see more of because some of these, some of these, um, some of these artists are breaking into the mainstream. So you've got the likes of Guz, the Guzzi so the guy with the who's doing this with the baseball cap. He's actually now on the on the on the uh, stand-up circuit. You know, he's performing at Edinburgh and so on, and you know, he's got his own TV. Sh- uh, he's he's produced things for BBC and so on. So what you're seeing is a migration from a minority if you like, uh, artistic performance, make breaking into the mainstream. And let's not forget, some of our most famous um, and distinguished presenters on, 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 the, on the news are Muslims. Michelle Hussain, for example. Uh, you know, you've got Fatima Manji, on, who's presents on Channel 4. So Muslims are already part of the British mainstream, and I think sometimes it's easy to forget that. Um, but there are people who are working their way up and who are already contributing. And this is going back to my earlier point, you know, Muslims are amongst us. They have been part of British society for decades. It's just unfortunate that the negative aspects, the difficult issues that communities are dealing with are always highlighted. We're forgetting, we're forgetting this positive contribution. And this is what we try to do in this concluding chapter. And now, the last thing I'd like to say is that it's not all hunky-dory. You know, there are, there are issues. There are more conservative elements within the communities that are questioning some of the more liberal practices and, and choices that are being made by these artists but I think it's it demonstrates the dynamic and organic nature of artistic production and it is very much work in progress but on the whole it's it's very much um, it's it's happening it's it, the genie's out of the bottle and you are going to see in the next few years some very interesting things and people who will be on your TV screens talking about themselves uh, and reflecting on their Muslim heritage but talking to you in, in, in a way which you will understand and an idiom which is very British. So we'll finish here for now and we'll hand it back to Martin and hopefully open up to the floor. So thank you for listening. Great. <laughs>